Good morning. Glad you're here with us. We are smack dab in the middle of a series, seven-week trip through what we call our core values. Um, it's the seven sort of ideas that animate what we do. And um, we've looked at the dynamic that, that we believe takes place in our small groups, that we're lovingly relational there and personally authentic. Um, and last week, uh, Rick, our cell pastor, shared with us about being outreach-oriented and how important it is that if, if we call Christ as Lord, that we are missionaries, we're on mission, we are purposely going out into our world to try and engage people with the loving gospel message. And uh, today we're going to take a look at, at an, another value. It's a value that we call being culturally relevant. And, um, and this, is, this one is um, it's a little different because we're dealing with, here we're dealing with the idea of culture. And, um, and culture is this idea that it can be easy to sort of say like, well, I don't really have any control over culture. Culture is just something that kind of happens to me. It's, it's around me. It's, you know, there's a lot of analogies for it. If, if we're the fish, culture is the water, and, and we don't really think about the water. It's just the, the, the atmosphere we're in. Um, but we're, we're going to see um, some different things that the scriptures say about, about how to engage culture, particularly when the culture is not a culture that necessarily agrees with the gospel message. Um, but, but in order to sort of get this idea of what happens when we're talking about culture, cultures create artifacts, right? Like, like culture is this idea that, that the people around us, we, we sort of, we, we bring things out of the material around us to create artifacts, songs, stories, pictures, okay, language, food, all of those things are, are come, come out of culture. And I want to share with you um, something that has, it's been making the rounds on on what might be considered a global culture on the internet. Um, so um, it's, it's something fascinating happened about 10 years ago. There was a really bad movie that was made. A lot of us had our hopes up for it. Um, but it was, it was the sixth installment, but numbered number three, right, in the Star Wars universe, okay? And, um, and I, I'm sorry, I was born in 1975, so if you ask me about cultural artifacts, like Star Wars is at the top of that list. So, so, the, so I got all my hopes up as an adult to see more of this story, right? And, and they made some movies that, quite frankly, in a lot of ways just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but one of those movies got sent to China, and it was translated into Mandarin, okay? And then, and then when it was translated into Mandarin, they actually made a language track of it where I assume it's a machine translated the Mandarin, and it created an English track at the bottom of the screen. You know, you can turn that on, Okay? Now, for those of you that Star Wars doesn't make any sense to you in the first place, this might actually be helpful. Um, but, but for those of us who actually remember this movie, um, I, want, I want to show you just a few moments from this movie. And what happened when, when the, the Star Wars story went from English into Mandarin, and then from Mandarin back into English, okay? And so someone now has done us the service of actually even dubbing over with the, uh, with the subtitles. But you'll see the subtitles and what they say. So take a look at this. All right, I'll spare you the rest. <clears throat> but believe me, there's a solid two hours plus of that. Um, but culture, culture is it's a difficult thing to get a grasp on what it is. And, um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that you know, we, we live at a point in time where culture is shifting and changing so rapidly. Um, we live at a, at a time where, because of the, the technology and the mobility that we have in our world, that, that we're introduced to many different cultures, and, and oftentimes we're introduced to them juxtaposed right next to one another, and we're not always sure what to do with them. And so I want to start by just making sure that we're, we, 
we deal with the idea of culture and what it is and where it comes from and just what that word is, and then what do we do with it? How do we, how do we make it so that, so that the message of the gospel is something that relates cross-culture, it relates to whatever cultural artifacts in place, whatever, whatever person that we're, we're interacting with, engaging with, we have the best opportunity possible to engage them at their cultural level with the gospel of Christ. So the word culture, is, it's an interesting word. It's, it's come to us through, through Old English and then through Latin. And it actually is an, the idea, it, translated literally, culture would be this idea of bringing forth. It, it, it's actually a, a word from farming, from the ground, where we get agriculture or horticulture, that, that they took the material of the world and they brought something forth out of the ground. And, and that's the old meaning. Well, we don't use it that way much anymore. When we think of culture, we're not thinking of, of crops. Um, because what happened was, was about, about 500 years ago, the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, it, the word culture shifted from bringing forth crops and food, and, and it actually shifted to, to a person who was taking what was available in their world and was using all of it. They became a cultured person. So they were engaging with the material of their world. Well, today, it's shifted even further, and, we've, and kind of the evolution of the term Culture is this idea that sort of encapsulates what we do with all the material in the world around us. Um, author, speaker, pastor Tim Keller says that culture is the rearranging of the material of the world in order to express meaning. That's what culture is. That, that we take the material around us and we ex- use it to express meaning. So we, we have... We have musical instruments, and we use them to put together. We have our voices, and we use that material in order to create something to express meaning. We do this at a human level, okay? We do this in our families. We, we, there is material around us, and we use our lives with one another in order to, to bring about meaning and to try and express meaning in our lives. And this is, this is how we use culture today. And... And the notion of culture and whether or not it matters is an important question. We, we, we start with this idea of, well, if this is culture, it's meaning-making, it's, it's, it's culture-making, it's taking what's available to me and making meaning of it. Is that even, is that even something that's, that rings true biblically? Well, I want to take a, a quick look at, at a couple passages. Um, and in a few minutes, we're going to go to the book of Acts. But right now, I want to start with just some passages in Genesis. And look at, look at kind of the design story on this, where it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, or the men, let man have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We can actually get a, start to get a picture even for culture, this idea of culture, at the, at the very beginning, from design, we can make an argument from design, that we were actually designed by God, we were designed by God to actually take the material of the world and to do something with it, to have dominion over it, to work with it. The very next chapter in Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man is retold there, the Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it, to take what was already there, the material that was already there, and to make something of it, to work with it, to take care of it. But we know that in the very next chapter, when sin comes in, something's happened to culture because cursed is the ground because of you. Okay? This, the, what God had given them, the land to take care of, it's now, it's now a curse. Okay? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You see, what happens is, or what has happened, is that God designed us to be culture and culturators, like those who bring something out of the world around us and to do something with them, to do something with what, what God's given us. And what's happened is that sin has corrupted the process. It's corrupted the process in ways that now it's fractured. The process is fractured. So, so there's all kinds of things that get in the way when it comes to our meaning-making, meaning making, when it comes to, to us taking the material of the world around us and trying to use it for a purpose that's life-giving. And I want to pause here for a minute and ask if you've looked at the news this week. And is there any question that we live at a point in time where the entire idea of meaning-making and purpose is fractured? And the questions that we are asking within our culture, and in a, even in a global context of culture, we can't agree upon answers. We can't come to a place where we find common ground. And so we're, asking, we're not even asking, when we ask the questions, we're not even asking about the same things. And these are the thorns and thistles of our world. You see, culture-making, culture as, a, as an idea, the effects of sin on it have fractured us. And so we live at a, we live at a particular point in history where we, truly the words culture wars make sense. Where, where on back-to-back weekends, people are marching on our capital for causes that seem to be juxtaposed with one another. They don't seem to fit. Okay? And we're looking for common ground, and it seems like everything around us, even one of the thorns and thistles, is the voice in our culture that says, you're not even going to be able to find common ground. That we're headed in opposite directions, and you can't make sense of this. And so we're sort of tempted to deal with it in, in various ways. And I want to look at a couple of those ways before we jump in. In a couple of minutes, if you've got your Bible, will you turn to Acts 17? It's a common passage for, for a topic like this, but we want to go there in just a couple minutes. But as we get there, I want to talk about the possibilities. When we think about a fractured culture, when we think about living at a point in time where common ground seems to be so difficult to find, I would propose that, that there may be many, many different potential ways of saying this, but I would propose that what it boils down to, when it boils down to it, there's essentially three potential responses that we make. And the first is to retreat from culture. I, can, I don't think I can find common ground. I'm not willing to fight, so I'm just going to back off. Okay, I'm going I'm to go away. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm not going to, to engage. And in a lot of ways, and kind of the extreme example of this, you know, there's even, there's, there are communities of people, right, who've done this for centuries. They've backed away from culture. They've lived separate from culture. And, and I think that that's even motivated by something good, okay? I want to remain pure. It's sort of more motivated by purity. I don't want to get my hands dirty in the mess. I don't want to be guilty of being the person who is culturally insensitive in a way that, that even sins against my neighbor. So I'm just going to back off. I'm going to go about my business and just leave culture to run its course. But the problem there is that as Christians, we're called to have a voice, and if we retreat, we give up our voice. 
So if I'm designed to take the, the material of my world and to make meaning of it, and I'm called by my Lord to go out into the world and make disciples, if I choose to retreat, I've given up that voice. And that can't be the right response. And so another potential one is that we might try to defy culture. Okay? We're going to recognize what the culture is, but I'm going to, I'm going to symbolically stand on my soapbox and defy culture. I'm going to shake my fist at it. And this is a very real option. This, this may take on multiple forms, but this may, be, this may be the literal soapbox preacher that you may come across on the college campus. That's possible that you see this. Now, for us, that's probably an extreme version. But for us, we may say this. I don't care how you respond to what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it anyway. That's, that's sort of a more mainstream version of defiance. I don't care what, I don't care how, how, how you take what I'm going to say, that's your problem, not mine. I don't care. And that's the voice of defiance, okay? And I think this one, I had a hard time coming up with a word, one word here, but I think this one is sort of, in the good sense, it's motivated by justice and truth. I want to see God's voice spoken for, and so I'm going to say it, okay? And we end a lot of, a lot of our statements or comments we end with, well, but it's the truth, Right? I'm guilty. Guilty of this. I can say whatever I want because it's the truth, and God's on my side, and if he's on my side, then what I'm saying is right and just and true. But see, the problem here becomes that if this is our our approach, we're left with no audience, right? When we retreat, we have no voice. When we do this, we have no audience. We don't make impact. In fact, I, we could argue, and this maybe is a whole other conversation at some point, but, but we could argue that that actually drives many people away from the message of the gospel. It shows them that, that we don't care about them. We only care about the information. And the gospel at its very nature is about going out and making disciples of all people. Like, this is, it's about those people. It's about loving God and loving my neighbor. And the, the, the stance of defiance... The stance of defiance doesn't do us any good in this conversation. And so perhaps a third option where we, we sort of negatively respond is just to absorb the culture. Look, if I, can't, if I can't retreat and I can't really stand against it, what choice do I have? I'm just going to live in amongst it and just absorb what it offers me. I mentioned earlier the fish in water, and, and, and it's that idea of whatever is in the water is just kind of in me, as part of me, and I, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to deal with it. And a lot of times this is motivated by peace. Like, it's a good thing. Like, I, I'm just going to keep peace with my culture, and I'm just going to, like, live and, and enjoy what I enjoy and ignore what I ignore, and I'm going to move on, and, but I'm going to live at peace. I'm not going to make any waves. But the problem here is that we make no difference when we just absorb culture. Okay? We don't, we, we, we live in it. We're not offended by it. We're not offending anyone, but... We don't really make a difference. And so as believers, as Christians, I think we're called to something different. We're called to something other. If you've got your Bible open to Acts 17 or on your phone or or wherever, let's take a look at Acts 17. And in Acts 17, we're going to see this modeled for us. Um, And to set the stage, this is is, um, kind of a little beyond the halfway point in the book of Acts. Paul, as an apostle, has been has been called by God to go out as a missionary. And so he's going, he was, 
He had this, really, he himself was sort of uniquely positioned as a Roman citizen, but trained as a Jewish scholar. Um, and so he was, he, would, he was interacting with a lot of different people groups. And, and in, this, in this section, um, as, the, as the story of Acts goes, in this section, Paul's just coming out of two cities, two towns where he was run out of town by Jews. Okay? And he himself was a Jewish scholar. But he had, he had gone through, through Thessalonica and then through Berea, two, two cities in, in Macedonia and northern Greece. And, and he'd come through those cities, and the folks in Thessalonica, the Jews in Thessalonica, really didn't like Paul and what he had to say about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they ran him out of town. And so he goes off to Berea, which is a town just, just down the, the road a little bit from Thessalonica. He goes down there, but then the Jews in Thessalonica hear that, that Paul is now in Berea, and they actually chase him from Thessalonica down to Berea, and they chase him out of Berea as well. Okay? So not only like, are you not welcome in our town, you're not welcome in their town either. So, so Paul heads down to Athens, and by the time Paul gets to Athens, the city of Athens, we, I mean, it's still standing today, right? It's, it's, this is an ancient city, and it's the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Greek philosophy and Greek culture. When Paul arrives there, Athens wasn't quite the city on the world stage that it once had been. It's estimated at this point in time that the population of Athens was maybe about 5,000 people, which would have made it a lot smaller than some other cities in the region, particularly Corinth had become a major city. Um, but, but when Paul arrives, Athens, it's, it's sort of diminished as a city of influence when it comes to political power or economic power, but it was still a city that had huge cultural influence. Okay? The, the, the works of art in Athens and the way that those works of art were tied to the religion of Athens and the, the, what, we, what we recognize as the Greek mythology, that tie was still very tight. And so Paul, being a man of the world, essentially he gets to Athens and quite frankly, just to be honest with you, there was no, like when Paul was kind of sent on this missionary journey, he had a vision from God to go, the call was to go to Macedonia, the area where Thessalonica and Berea were. Athens is kind of out of that region. And so Paul's kind of, he's kind of maybe on holiday, okay? He's sort of out of the stream of, of his intention with where he wanted to go when he set out on this trip. So let's take a look at this. If you'd read with me, starting in verse 16, Acts 17, verse 16, it says this, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Okay? Athens was, let's stop there and, and unpack this a little bit. Athens was kind of a university town. Okay? In fact, the first university was there. And Athens was a place where ideas were on the table. Okay? They would sort of listen to anything, and they had a history of not doing that. Okay? In fact, Socrates, who was one of the first ones to really bring new ideas, was, was imprisoned and eventually um, was, was banished. But he, he, as the legend goes, he drank the hemlock and took his own life rather than being banished from Athens. Okay? So, so this, this city has a long history of philosophical debate. Okay? 
But I want to pick up a few ideas from what Paul did when he was in Athens. Right off the bat in verse 16, it says, while he was waiting for them in Athens, and I I hit on this already, I mentioned this already, but this seems to be kind of like Paul in parenthetical thought, right? Like, he's going about his missionary journey from A to Z, but Athens sort of gets stuck in there. He wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't on the plan. But so, so what we're going to read here is what Paul does when, quite frankly, he doesn't have anything on his to-do list. Okay? Now, I know what I do, right? I find a couch and a sporting event of some kind, and I, I generally close my eyes, okay? Or I find a book or some other diversion. And think about where Paul was. He's in this place with all of this culture, I mean, this is, like, this is like kind of being at, at, in New York City, right? In the theater district. Or, or, or at one of the museums. Like, he's got all of this in front of him. But he doesn't take the approach of just taking the diversion, taking the holiday. Because it goes on to say, he was waiting for them in Athens, and it says his spirit was provoked. If you have a different translation, it might say something like distressed. Okay? He was distressed by this. This is, this is an interesting word. It doesn't translate well for us, but, but it actually, there's, there's all kinds of ingredients into this word provoked. There's a little bit of anger, okay? It has a little bit of anger in it, as in, I'm really, I'm really angry at what I'm seeing. And it would make sense if, if you're familiar with, with the Greek myths and you're familiar with the Greek forms of worship. There were just despicable acts that were, be, that were portrayed in their, in their artifacts, in their, in their, in their um, Greek religion. There was, there was rape. There was, there was murder, and it was all sort of played out in front of people on a regular basis. And so Paul sees that and responds. He, he, he has a gut-level response of, this is, this is awful. But this word also, it doesn't have a, con- it's anger, but it doesn't have a confrontational. So that's why we struggle to get a really good one English word for it. So he does, but he doesn't have a confrontational approach to, to his anger. He actually is anger, angry in a way that he says, I don't, I don't want to live in a world where this is the norm. Do you ever have that response to a cultural artifact that you come across in our culture? I don't want to live in a world where we make objects of other people for our own sexual pleasure. I don't want to live in that world. Are you provoked by it? Am I? I don't want to live in a world where getting rich so often means exploiting someone else. Does that provoke us at all? You see, while Paul was in a, in, in a, in a city, in a place that was 2,000 years ago, so much of what he's experiencing and his potential response to it is like our own. And so he's provoked. And so what does he do, right? He was provoked because this city was full of idols. So what does he do? He essentially goes two places. Did you catch this? Look at verse 17. He, so he reasoned. <laughs> he reasoned. He began to engage others at the level of, is there good reason for this? Do do you have good reason for what you're doing? In two places, in the synagogue, which was the Jewish house of worship, that was church for him. He's provoked in his spirit, and so he engages the church and in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace here was a physical place. Um, It was at the top of the hill. Um, but it was also, there was the marketplace, think maybe shopping mall, there was commerce going on, but the marketplace in Athens also was a marketplace of ideas. 
And this is where many of the, many of the, the, the idols were present and many of the places of worship were present there. And so he's just going around, and it looks like he's just having conversation with anyone that will engage him. Okay? So he goes, to, he goes to church in reasons, and he, he doesn't retreat from that world. He could have said, what's wrong with you, church, synagogue? You're not making a single difference here in the city of Athens. But he goes and he reasons with them. And we don't get a lot here. This is a very, very Greek story and not, not as much a Jewish story. He goes there and he, he reasons with them. But then he, he goes out into the culture and he engages. Okay? He engages. And we'll re- hear more about that later. He meets a couple of groups, Epicureans and Stoics. Uh, they were just two, two large groups of philosophers in the day. And they say something about him. And this is an interesting thing. As, as the voice of Christ begins to engage in culture, listen to what they say. They call him a babbler. Okay? It's another really interesting term. The word babbler it actually translates directly as seed picker. Okay? You seed picker. Okay? But it was, it, was, it was a way of, culturally, it was a way of saying this. It was a way of saying you don't have anything original to say. Now, he's in a place where originality is like the highest, a new idea is the highest praise. And he, what they're saying about him is all you're doing is you're just taking up ideas from other places and just spreading them. Okay? That's, when, when the gospel goes out, when the gospel begins to penetrate, I, I don't know about you, but culturally, people will say things like, Oh, this is just another one of those ideas from, it's just like all the other ideas. There's nothing new about this. There's nothing different about this. The same thing that people say about the gospel today was said 2,000 years ago in the city of Athens when Paul brought it to them. This isn't new. This isn't different. You're just, you're just picking seeds. You're just picking and choosing what you like and leaving the rest of it alone. You see, the mere act of going out does not guarantee a positive response. Okay? So they say two things. One, you're a babbler, and one, you're bringing foreign gods, foreign divinities in. Well, on the second one, he's really, that's really true. He is. So then they take him to another place. They take him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, is, again, doesn't, it's, it's, the word Areopagus is, is a word it's for a place and a group of people. It's kind of like Wall Street. If I say Wall Street does this, it's a place, but it's also a group of people. And the Areopagus were a group of people that, that really they were like the, the cultural elite, the professors of the professors there in the city of Athens. And it was actually geographically, it's on the side of a hill, and it, it's, it, it's called Mars Hill. Um, in, in the, we call it Mars Hill today. That's from the Roman god Mars. But it came off of the side of the hill, and they actually would, would meet on the side of that hill, and they would just debate and discuss. We don't know if he was arrested or he went there on his own will, but, but either way, he, he, because he went into the marketplace and began to engage people in the culture, he was given an opportunity to talk about his ideas at, at what in the city of Athens was like the highest court. He was invited into the Board of Regents at Ohio State University to tell them what his ideas were. Okay? Now, faithful to the first two locations, the church, the marketplace, led to the third. Sometimes we want to, like, shortcut, right? We want to skip those first two and just go straight to the Areopagus. I just want to go straight to the Board of Regents and make my claim but the story doesn't go like that. The story says Paul was waiting, and in his waiting, he reasoned in the church, and he reasoned in the marketplace, and his, his faithfulness to be obedient at those levels led to the greater opportunity. Okay? So he begins to share. Let's pick up the story again in verse 22. Verse 22. It says this, So Paul, 
standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is, is given this, let's stop there. Paul's given this opportunity to speak in front of the Areopagus. And wouldn't it be tempting, wouldn't it be tempting to stand in that moment and say, you dirty people, how can you honor the kinds of things that you're honoring in the marketplace? How can, you, how can you honor these gods who lie and steal and destroy? How can you honor these gods who are guilty of just terrible, heinous acts and you treat them as divine? And instead, he sums all of that up in one phrase, right? Now, at least in the telling, it's, it's summed up in one phrase. I see that you're very religious. What does he lead with? Because he doesn't lead with defiance. He leads with a point of connection. I see that you're very religious. He doesn't give up his, his audience in order to make some kind of point that's going to turn them away. He says, you're awfully religious. In fact, and notice this, it says he went around and inspected, I've inspected carefully your objects of worship. He engaged these things. I've, in, I've inspected carefully. And in fact, I've noticed you've got this one particular altar, this one particular idol. It's an idol to an unknown God. Um, Greek history tells us the unknown God developed a few hundred years before Paul arrived. There was a plague in the city. And they had done all the things they could do with the other, um, with the other idols, and the plague didn't go away. And, um, and so... Uh, they, they consulted one of sort of their traveling poets who'd been all over the world, and their traveling poet said, in other lands, they actually worship a god who is sort of distant from all the other gods, like above all the other gods, and he rules over all the other gods. Now, a lot of Christians have tried to say that was Yahweh, that was Jehovah, maybe, maybe not, but because the Greek uh, history doesn't tell us that. But whatever, however the unknown god got there, they actually built an altar to this unknown god. They added this unknown god to the rest of their gods, and then they worshiped that unknown god. And whether by coincidence or whether by the actual active hand of God in the circumstance and the situation, the plague subsided. It went away. This is several hundred years before Paul was there. Whether or not Paul knew that story, we don't know. What we know is that he went into the marketplace and he saw their objects of worship and amongst them, he saw an altar to an unknown God. And he looked at it and he said, I'm going to take something that you already know and I'm going to tell you what you don't know. Right? I'm going to tell you what you don't know. And so he, went, he, he runs down a list and look at the things he says. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he starts with this, God is the creator 
By the way, this, is a, this was a significant debate in first century Athens. Where did we come from? They were wrestling with man's origins. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't, he doesn't live in temples, nor is he served by human hands. This God is self-sufficient. Notice how he, this starts to stand in contrast to the idolatry. Those idols, they needed people to provide things for them, food and, and different things. He says, that's not this God. That's not the God I'm talking about. And it says that he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. This is actually an interesting connection between the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans said, there is a God, but that God is way out there. Okay? So distant from you that don't worry about him. And the Stoics were actually, they had such like an oppressive pantheism. They were so duty-bound okay, that God didn't care about them. It was, just, it was just the duty that they fulfilled. He didn't, he didn't approach them with love or with any kindness. They had, to, they had to fulfill the duty in order to be accepted by their God. And so you get this sort of middle ground where Paul says, wait a minute, this God isn't distant. He's very close, but he actually cares about you. He sustains your life. He's invested in what you're doing. He's reaching into their world. He's reaching into what they already know and understand, and he's, he's tying the ideas together. So he sustains life. And he says he made from one man every nation. He, this is, he's saying, look, in, in, in shorthand, all people are created equal. That We've all come from one man. And he's intimately involved. He's determined the periods and the places where you're going to live. And then he goes on to quote something. He quotes a, a prophet in Epimenides. Epimenides was a Greek poet. Some of his poetry is a little saucy. Okay? It would be a PG-13 at best, maybe a little worse. Okay? But he shows that he had a knowledge of their culture when he quotes Epimenides. And he says, he says even your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. He takes something from within their culture and ties it. You know, it's, it's like for us quoting something off the top 40. In order to say, this, this whole picture that this person has might not be the right picture, but there are aspects of it that are truthful, that are right. And I'm going to take that, that aspect and I'm going to try and tell you how it's right. But he doesn't stop with just the cultural connection because, you see, that's sort of like the watered-down version of, of, like, tolerance that we have today, right? Like, we're all just, I'm just going to, I'm only going to tell you how I agree with you. We're not going to deal with anything else. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, being then God's offspring, this is verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So you see what Paul did. He starts with, he starts with I see you're very religious, and he moves, into, he moves into their philosophical debates, and he connects with their poet, and then he says this. But now... I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. You're no, longer, you're no longer ignorant because I'm about to tell you that God sent a man. He sent a man. And in the sending of that man, he's called us to repent, to turn away from these things and towards the one that he sent. 
he lays the gospel out. Now, he doesn't, it's interesting because in other places, Paul, when he, when he expresses the gospel, he expresses it in, in different ways, and he includes different elements. But the elements he includes here, they seem to be like introductory points. Let me draw connections for you to, the, to the, a, more, a fuller story. And he says, what needs to happen is repentance. Not worship of these false gods, but repentance. And God's proven that repentance is what needs to happen because that man that he sent, he rose him from the grave. He brought him back to life. He gave him life after death had seemed to have the victory. Now, it goes on, verse 32, when they heard this of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You see, when we go out, as Rick said last week, when we go out as missionaries, when we, when we go out to our neighbor, and when we engage them where they live, you see, we're making a statement, and we're saying that, that outreach, that, that, that cultural relevance doesn't begin with bringing people here. It begins with less of that and more of, I'm going to go out to where you are. And when I go out to where you are, I'm going to have to have to speak your language. I'm gonna, I have a need to connect with you and communicate with you in ways that are meaningful. But once I'm there, I'm not going to say nothing at all about the gospel. I'm not going to just simply go there and, and congratulate you and pat you on the back for being cultured. I'm going to go and I'm going to learn to speak your language because you need to have the rest of the story. But people will respond in a lot of different ways to that. The three responses we get here, they're still mockery. They're still calling him a babbler. There's still curiosity. Others say, I want to hear, you, hear more about this. But do you see that at the end? There's also belief. There's also belief. The, the, pres, the gospel doesn't, when it goes out, it's, it is culture-bearing. It, it, it brings forth life. It takes the material in the world around it and uses it to make meaning, to bring purpose to people's lives. It's why, it's why we want to do everything we can to try and speak the gospel in the simplest terms possible. To make connections for people right where they are so that we don't get lost. We don't get lost in, in, in high-sounding... All this to say, we're not here to try and make ourselves sound good or look good, and we're not here to try and look cool. Thank heavens. I'm a, I'm a failure on that front. But we're here because when we're able to connect where people are, to the God who loves them and what he's done for them to have a relationship with them. This brings meaning. There's nothing more relevant, nothing more relevant than answering life's biggest questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Am I alone in the universe? What will become of me after this life? What's my problem? How is it solved? There's nothing... Thousands and thousands of years have not diminished the relevance of those questions. And our task as people who are called by God is to reject retreating, defying, and absorbing. We have to. 
We're called to something higher. Allow me to propose the first thing we have to do is engage. Did you notice what Paul did? He didn't sit in his room and sulk and cry and hide from what was going on in his culture. He engaged. Christians need to have a footprint in our culture. We need artists in the room to engage the arts. We need teachers in the room to engage curriculum. We need lawyers in the room to engage law. Engage. The gospel makes a difference. It makes a difference individually, and when it's made a difference in individuals, it makes a difference corporately. I would, I'm going to say this. So, much of, so many of our problems are created because we want to skip the individual change and rush to the corporate change. We want the culture to change than to force people into something. And instead, we ought to be compelling people to see the truth for what it is, and that will make a difference in the culture at large. We win the culture war one person at a time. One person at a time. That's what, where Paul began. He began in the church. He began in the marketplace. We need to engage. But not just engage, we need to understand We need to understand. Instead of defiance, we need to move towards people to try and understand. We need to hear them, to hear their stories, to understand where they're coming from so that we can present the rest of the story because we care about them. Not so we can win an argument. Not so we can be on the right side of history. Those things are, history is insignificant when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's meaningless. But the soul is eternal. You've never met anyone whose existence is going to end with their funeral. No one. We engage because people need this. We need to understand them. We need to engage them. And then we need to converse, right? Maybe instead of even relevance, we should be talking about cultural conversance. I, I, I understand my neighbor in a way that I can have a conversation, that I can dialogue with them, that I have common ground with them. I found common ground with them. And so someone with more artistic skill than I helped me out with this, right? So we meet two people standing on opposite sides of the cultural divide, right? Right? Have you ever traveled internationally and been unable to speak the language? I had a very long conversation in Spanish slash English one afternoon in the Dominican Republic that'll have to wait for another time. But it ended with a Dominican man standing, you know, he did the close, loud talking thing. And I said, lo siento, mi espanol no es muy bueno. Right? But an opportunity lost. There was a cultural clash. We were standing on opposite sides culturally when it came to language. Okay? But here's what you need to understand. No matter which side of that divide you're on, you are a culture maker. You are called to bring forth meaning out of what's around you. Taking the material of life to grasp meaning, to express meaning, to leave meaning behind in your artifacts, whatever it is that you create. And so we have to build bridges, right? We have to find ways, as Paul did, to, en- en- to engage. We can't pull back. We can't retreat. We can't build castles and fortify them and-, and just hope that we can withstand the cultural battles. 
we have to engage. We have to understand this is what Paul did. He went and he closely examined their objects of worship so that he could engage, so that he understood in ways that he was able then to bridge the gap, right? To bridge the gap so that he could stand on common ground because engagement requires speaking my neighbor's language. That might be literal. That might be literal. You might have a neighbor that needs you to move towards them on language, but primarily it's figurative, right? You have people around you who have stories and lives and they're making meaning out of what's around them. And they need someone to move towards them, to fill in the gaps of the story, the parts that they don't understand, the parts that they're, they're acting out in ignorance. And it happens in the church and outside the church. We do this. We engage the culture. We engage the individuals living in cultured lives. I want to close with this. <clears throat> to a different city, Paul, uh, Paul wrote these words. From 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might, ha I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The question we're left with is, how much am I willing to engage? How far am I willing to go to understand? Am I willing to converse? And I will... It's a question that we've got to answer. Would you pray with me?